Now, let me give you a warning as we begin. I'm going to start my opening thing here. Please, please, please don't take offense at it. It's fun, okay? It's equal opportunity. We're not pointing anybody out except Ken Hare. No, I'm just playing. We're not pointing anybody out. Listen, hear my heart. What what Sam, what Moon, what I talked about this morning is unity. And it's not just unity here. It's unity in the church of God, in the church of Jesus Christ. We're going to kind of poke some fun at some denominations, including us. Okay, Not that we're denom- we, we are a denomination. Non-denominational is a denomination, just we don't like to say we are. But, so, if you have had a past or a current affiliation with any of these denominations that we're going to kind of poke fun at, please, I am not singling anybody out. I'm going to make fun of us too. So, that being said, everybody's like, what are you talking about? Okay, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? Now, we're going to go through some groups. And give you the answer, okay? Charismatics? It only takes one because their hands are in the air already. Okay. Pentecostals? Takes ten. One to change the bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. <laughs> so if you've been in those groups, I'm not making fun of you. Listen, we're going to go on, okay? Baptists? Everybody's like, uh-oh. It takes at least fifteen. One to change the light bulb and three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad. Mormons? Five. One man to change the bulb and four wives to tell him how to do it. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I didn't make these up, by the way. Unitarians. We choose not to make a statement either in favor of or against the need for a light bulb. However, if on your own journey you have found that light bulbs work for you, that is fine. You're invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your light bulb for the next Sunday service in which we will explore a number of light bulb traditions, including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long-life, and tinted, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. (laughs) Yeah. A couple more. Nazarene, it takes six. One woman to replace the bulb while five men review the church lighting policy. (laughs) Reformed people, that's us. It takes none because the light will come on and go off at predetermined times that have been predestined from ages past. (laughs) And finally, how many Amish people does it take to change a light bulb? What's a light bulb? Now, What if you tried to get all of these groups together to change that bulb? What would that look like? Hmm? What if these groups tried to do anything together? What could they accomplish? And I think the truth is probably not much. Why not? Because there's too many different views, too many different agendas, too many different people. And a funny thing happens when you get people together. They tend to come apart. And in a lot of different ways. And unfortunately, that's true of the church too. And we can laugh at the differences of denominations and cults, but our separation as the church of Jesus Christ is not a joke. It's not funny. 
fights, schisms, church splits, power struggles, power grabs, and the like are all too common terms in churches. Has anybody ever been part of an ugly business meeting at a church that they went to? Why don't we all just work together? And why don't we work together well as the church of Jesus Christ? Now, we'll address this today through our text. Again, if you've got a Bible, a good old-fashioned paper Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. And you know what I love about what we've done so far this morning? is the fact that you've already heard this passage a few times. You're going to hear it again, and again, and again, and again. Philippians chapter 2. Such a powerful passage. What we're going to read is, we're actually going to read right now, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Okay? And what we're going to spend the bulk of our time in this morning is 1 through 4. We'll touch on 5 through 11, but I really expect to really tee moon up really well for next week when he talks about probably 5 through 11. Uh, we'll use it in our passage, but it's we're, that's not our focus today necessarily. <clears throat> Let me read this passage. This is one of those passages that is just... So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, this passage is completely overwhelming. This passage is incredibly convicting. But it is also, God, incredibly encouraging. And I pray that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, by the power of Your Word, God, that You would speak to us this morning and teach us what it means to be like Jesus Christ, individually and corporately. And we do need Your help. So we ask for it now. Holy Spirit, You are our teacher and we trust You. And we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. I really think this is one of those passages and all of the Bible completely, wholeheartedly is inspired by God. Every word is the very Word of God breathed out by God Himself. And I don't want to put more weight on one word than the other, but I really believe that this passage should be one that maybe we just read and cover our mouths so that we don't mess anything up. We don't have that luxury this morning because I'm up here and I'm going to talk a little bit. By the way, do I look like a unicorn to anybody? Is this... Sorry. There we go. Somebody told me that they set the whole service one time in the 
microphone looked like it was pointed right at my forehead. So we wanted to rectify that liturgically. Um, anyway, this is one of those passages we should probably just read and cover our mouths because then we say stupid stuff about unicorns. But, um, but, but let's let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts this morning. And He's able to do that through the preaching of the Word. And as much as I love to preach, and I do, I love to preach, but sometimes it is just overwhelming. Um, but God is able to do it through the preaching of the Word. So we'll look at this amazing passage today and see what the Spirit of God would say to us. Verses 1-4 through four give us an idea as to what God wants from His people, especially when it comes to finding common ground. Paul is going to show us a major characteristic of the people of God and how it's to be lived out in our life together. Two points from verses 1-4. through four. The basis, B-A-S-I-S, the basis of unity... That's the first point. And the second point is the basics of unity, B-A-S-I-C-S. And then we'll look at verses 5 through 11, which will give us our third point, which is the source of unity. I just couldn't come up with a good B word. I'm sorry. I couldn't do it. Basis. I was real happy with basis and basics, and I'm like, in the the source of unity. So let's look at verse 1. Paul gives us the basis of unity by putting forth a list of why the Philippians should work towards unity. Verse 1 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... And he stops there. He lists four aspects that flow from their salvation. And that's important to note. These things flow from their salvation. Note that he says, if there is, and we said it at the beginning of the service... This is really just as well translated since there is. It's not asking if these conditions exist, but instead he is saying since they exist. And we talked about it earlier, but let's try to, let's try to get inside his head and see these things again. The first one was since there is encouragement in Christ. Number two is since there is comfort from love. Number three, since there is participation in the Spirit. And number four, since there is affection and sympathy. Now we're going to break those down a little bit, unpack them a little bit for you. Now why is Paul saying this? Let's try to get inside his head here and figure this out. Paul is recapping some benefits of salvation to the Philippians. He's pointing out to them what good has come from their being adopted into God's family. Now if you'll remember back in the first chapter, Paul thanks God for the Philippians praises God for the advance of the gospel and says that living is Christ, dying is gain. He's counting his blessings and he's sharing that with the Philippians. And he does this to assure them that his hardship, his imprisonment, is not a reason to despair, but rather an occasion to look to God and see how good he is, even in the midst of trying circumstances. Now, he's calling on them to count their blessings as a way of calling for radical self sacrifice. He's saying, and this is M, not quotes, but finger quotes. Let's put some finger quotes up here. He's saying to them, hey, look at the benefits of your salvation. Benefits like encouragement in Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Anybody in here that doesn't like to be encouraged? That's kind of what I thought. This is one of those times when it's good to not react to those statements. Sometimes I'm wanting a reaction. Everybody likes to be encouraged, don't they? Everybody. 
The word literally means, the word encouragement means a calling near. A calling near. So it's like Paul is saying, know that Christ is calling you to himself. Remember the same love, the song says, you're calling, you're calling, you're calling us to the cross. Here it's he's saying, you're calling, you're calling, you're calling us to yourself. Christ himself is encouraging us by saying, what, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there's encouragement there as He draws us near to Himself. Know that Christ has called you near to Himself. Anybody ever part of a... Don't raise your hand here because you could just wallow in my pity with me. You're standing and they're picking teams. Anybody? I'll take so-and-so. I'll take, And you're going. And all of a sudden you look around and you're the last one left. I guess I'll take Jason. Yeah, I got picked. Well, you didn't have any choice. You got picked. That's not the idea here. The idea here is Jesus stands and He looks at you first and He says, I want you to come be with me. Can you hear Christ saying that to you this morning? I want you to come be with me. And get a hold of that. That's encouraging. Jesus Christ wants you to be with Him. Man, that's good stuff. He then goes on, Paul does, to talk about comfort from love. Comfort, like encouragement, is a universally appreciated benefit. Salvation is the ultimate sign that God loves us. John 3.16 reminds us that God loved us so much that He sent Jesus to die for our everlasting life. The book of 1 John makes it even more plain when it says that God Himself is love. Right? And as one who has trusted in God and has seen Him as love, we are greatly comforted, or we should be. From there, we're called to see our participation in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given uh, to believers. Herb Hodges, by the way, I'm going to... And I completely forgot to do announcements. We'll get to that after I speak. Sorry about that. Herb Hodges um, is coming here. I'll talk about that then. But in this book, he calls the Holy Spirit our stay-within friend. Okay, And I want you to know that the Holy Spirit exists in you if you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit has been given to believers as our stay-within friend. When we are born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence with us. He's not just with us. He's active in and through us. I love what Paul says in another place. He says, as if God Himself was making a petition through us. So next time you open your mouth, think about the very words of God coming out of your mouth and God speaking through you. And again, not in some weird ethereal way. The Lord has said this. It's as you speak and as you communicate, God is making an appeal through you. So the Holy Spirit works not just with us. He's active in and through us. God Himself. And, and, and God the Spirit is not some vague ethereal spacey thing, kind of like what Sam was talking about this morning. This is God Himself. The Holy Spirit is God. And He he lives in us. He abides with us. God Himself abides with us and works in us, for us and through us. And we get to participate with God Himself in this process. It's a big deal. The God who created, the same God uh, that spread the heavens wide, the same God that was crucified is working in you and through you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, God, uh, Paul calls our attention to our affection and sympathy. 
Now, I've included them as one benefit here because they both refer to our inner emotions. And where are you most messed up? I mean, really. Man, I've got a pretty good mask. But man, in here and right here, I am a stinking mess. As I lay in bed and these, it's like troops going back and forth and... This is exactly what Paul's addressing here. Inside us, it deals with our inner emotions. The word for affection, now get this, this is, this is a good breakfast thought here. The word affection is literally bowels. No movement in the congregation on that? Okay, to the Greek and Roman mind, the bowels were regarded as the seat of the more violent passions such as anger and love. So that was to the Roman mind, but to the Hebrews, the Hebrews saw the bowels as the seed of the tender affections, especially kindness, benevolence, and compassion. So the word for sympathy is literally the bowels in which compassion resides. I know, again, our Western mind, we can't wrap our mind around the bowels being anything good. But to the Hebrew mind, it meant compassion. Bowels meant compassion. So it's kind of like somebody saying someone is quick and fast when he talks about bowels and sympathy and affection. Okay? Because the word for sympathy, uh, we talked about, it's kind of like someone saying both words to say one thing. And that's very common in the Hebrew culture they did that. Both words literally refer to the inner place where we feel kind, sympathetic emotions. That's, we'll leave it at that. In the verse, Paul is saying, do you feel the compassion and sympathy from the person of God since you're saved? So since there's encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, we have a basis of moving toward unity. So that's the first point. But now we really want to move on to the meat of our discussion. From the basis of unity, we can get into the basics of unity. But stop a second and let what we just talked about serve as the impetus for what we're about to talk about. You can't have what we're about to talk about until you know what we just talked about. Does that make sense? You can't move the vehicle until you put gas in it. Right? Well, you can, but you'd be pushing it, and you don't want to do that. Okay? Because you're going to come up against a hill, and I promise you're not going to push the car up the hill. And listen, I think there's something very very pertinent to our Christian lives there. It's like we spend our Christian lives trying to push the car up the hill. When God has just given us a full tank of gas from the basis of what He's given us. Does that make sense? We're back there pushing and grunting and going, this is not working. And God said, I know because you forgot why you're doing it and how you're supposed to do it. The basis is how we get it done And now we're going to look at the basics of how to do it. Look at verses 2 through 4, and I think this is nuts and bolts of what unity looks like in our everyday lives. We've talked a whole lot about unity this morning. We're going to break it down. Look at uh, verse 2 through 4. Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
So let me stop a second. Kind of convicted about all the bowel stuff. Sorry about that. No place for that. Now, here's where we're going to be challenged. Paul has set the table with what we received in our salvation. Now he's going to say, since you have all this, here's what you're called to do with it. Verse 2 gives us the main point of the passage. Paul is calling the Philippians to complete his joy, Paul's joy, by being of the same mind. The rest of the verse reiterates and reinforces this thought, saying to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The previous verse led us to this, and the following verses expound on this. Paul wants them to be of the same mind. Now, we talked about this a little bit Wednesday night, and we asked how hard is it for a group of people to be of the same mind. Right now, we are all thinking about different things. We said that Wednesday. It takes something special to bring a group of people into the same mind. Okay, But Paul's saying, I want you to complete my joy by being of the same mind. It literally means that they are thinking the same thing. They have the same purpose. They are unified in thought and purpose. And have you ever seen a group of people who had one purpose? Somebody give me an example of a group of people that had one purpose. Military, okay. What's What really started in full yesterday? We will not utter such blasphemous things in this room. Sam Smith, how dare you bring up the cowboys. Sports teams usually have the same purpose. I don't like Clemson, but doggone last night. Did anybody watch that game? They played in Clemson, and that whole, I don't know how many seat, how many people sit in that arena, but it was orange. They were unified. They had the same mind. They wanted the same thing. Very convicting. Side note, those of us that love sports, David Platt preached a message a couple weeks ago about the idolatry of sports, and he gives an example in there about bringing somebody from overseas, and if they started here on a Sunday, and they came to church with you, and they watched you coldly mouth some words, come in late, leave early, and then you took them to a football game in Auburn or Alabama the next week, and you came early, and you hung out with people you didn't even know, and you were high-fiving, you were hugging, you were sharing a table together, and then you go into a massive arena where there's thousands of people, and you're all screaming and singing the same songs and doing the same thing. He said, which would they think is worship? It's kind of It convicts me. I'll leave it at that. So, groups of people that have one purpose, sports team. Think work crews, fire crews. People have differing roles, differing responsibilities, but they have one purpose in mind. Winning the championship, pleasing the boss, saving the family from the fire. Now, let's put this in our context. Does the church, does our church have the same purpose? Why did you walk through those doors this morning? I'd say we probably all have different agendas. Paul's saying, I don't want it to be that way. Do we all have the same thoughts regarding our goals and ambitions? Are we working toward the same end? What is the purpose of the church? Now, I've used this passage before, but it is so powerful. It's so uniting. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. 
And Sam and I talked about this a little bit Wednesday night as well. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3 gives us the purpose of the church. I'm about to settle a purpose statement. This is, this is powerful. And I'm not saying it to get your dander up. I'm, this is amazing. Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 7 through 13. I think, yes. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now listen. Tucked away in verses 9 and 10, we find this. Go back to verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, you tell me what the purpose of the church is. We just read it. So that through the church, what? Okay, don't tell me. I'll tell you. How's that? To make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is the purpose of the church. To simplify it, here you go. To make God's glory known. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we go out there and do what we do. Now, are we united around this purpose? Is this the glue that holds us together? Or are you here to get a little spiritual lift? Are you here because your marriage is suffering? Those aren't necessarily wrong motives, but they're incomplete motives. Because you will glorify God through a right marriage. You will glorify God when your spirits are lifted. But if the only reason that you're here and that you walk through those doors this morning is for yourself, you're wrong. And I don't say that to be rude. Are we here to get what we want? Are you here to increase your stature or your reputation in society? And there are Churches full of people right now that go to get a better business deal. And if you're here for that reason, you're wrong. Or are you here to increase the knowledge of His glory? We exist for God and for His glory. And if that is our common goal, our common ground, we'll have unity. We'll be of the same mind. And you know, I, I think, I, I think it was Moon. I'm going back through the messages. Moon talked about striving for unity. Unity is not something that just happens. It's not that we just show up here and oh, we've got unity. 
It's something we've got to work toward. And again, that's why the basis of unity is so important. Because we've got these things in common so that we can bring them together and glorify God with them. Now, if this is not our common goal, if it's not our common ground, we will not know unity. And we need not even move on to see what this looks like in the next couple of verses. Get this clear, because without this single unifying goal, we are all pulling in different directions. It's like we're all pushing the car from different sides. And what Paul is about to lay out for us will be utterly unattainable. Now, fasten your seatbelts. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 to see what this looks like. The basics of unity is still the point that we're on. We looked at the basis, now we're looking at the basics. And listen, try not to laugh or pass out when we read these verses. Because they're really that unbelievable. Listen, this is what unity looks like. Verse 3. Uh, Philippians, I'm sorry, I'm back in Philippians, chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How does that hit you? It hits me as impossible. Unity looks like a group of people who care more about each other than they care about themselves. Unity looks like a group of people who are free from the love of self and do nothing, nothing from selfishness. Has anybody ever done something out of selfishness? No? Great. <laughs> Let me tell you what. It consumes me. My selfishness consumes me. Nothing motivated by selfishness. Unity looks like a group of people whose chief characteristic is, just what Moon said, humility. And that word humility is loaded with implications. It's a 50 cent Greek word, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Okay, I will try. I'm no Greek scholar. Okay, let, let me spell it for you. If you're taking notes, now it's literally about this long, so clear off two lines so that you'll have room for it. T-A-P-E-I-T-A-P-E-I-N-O-P-H-R-O-S-Y-N-E. Anybody want to try that? Because I'm topenophrosine. I don't know. The bare bones definition is understanding that I am nothing. That's the bare bones definition. I'm nothing. If you look at the beginning of the word, you see T-A-P-E-I. Now, what's that make you think of? Besides, It's not tape, okay? Let me just get that out of the way. Even though unity and humility could be seen as tape. T-A-P-E-I. We get our word tapestry from that Greek word. What's a tapestry? Anybody? A tapestry is a carpet. And it infers getting all the way down. Because this word humility is saying get down on the carpet as low as you can go. Humbling yourself as low as you can. Lowering yourself why? For what purpose? It's not just lowering yourself because you know what we can do sometimes? We can lower ourselves and from the carpet saying, hey, look at how low I am. 
Check me out. I'm lower than you. I'm doing real good with this tapestry carpet thing. We need to vacuum. But I'm down here and I see it. We do. We can go that way. We can talk about how humble we are. Like Sam was joking about this morning. But the purpose is lowering yourself in order to see others as exalted. Getting as low as you can so that no matter how you look, everybody is above you. Humble yourselves. Without humility, we can never count others as more important than ourselves. We will never see the worth of others until we see our utter lowliness. And let me stop, because then what we do is we beat ourselves up. Yeah, I'm a jerk. Everybody else is really cool. Everybody else is really spiritual. And I'm just bad. I'm nasty. And man, I am bad. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about pointing out your badness. We're talking about submitting yourself to others. Okay? We'll never see the worth of others until we see our utter lowliness. You can't be important to me if I am important to me. The greatest... Listen, write this down if you're taking notes. Because I think this... If I, did, if I said nothing else today, this would suffice. The greatest thief of unity is selfishness. The greatest thief of unity is selfishness. And we, as individuals and as a group, we are filled with selfishness. This, my conviction comes, I'm thinking about John Caleb Moore loves to play fight. Now listen, that used to be fun. Now it's not so fun for me anymore, okay? Because play fighting involves him punching me as hard as he can, as often as he can, and as many spots as he can, and me finally just getting him down and saying, But who's more important? Is John more important, or am I more important to me? I'm full of selfishness, and I see it when he wants to play fight. Ask your spouse when they want to do something that you don't want to do. Ask yourself when you're tired and hungry if you're consumed with yourself, because I think most of the time we are. And this disease of self stagnates our spiritual growth and it divides us from each other. Let me quickly run through that list again in verse three, verses 3 and 4 to reinforce in our hearts and minds what unity looks like in practical application. Listen, I'm going to list four things. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit. In humility, number three, counting others as more significant than yourselves. And in number four, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here you go. The thing about the Bible is that it will make you completely miserable if you are focused on yourself. It will wear you out if you're focused on yourself. You'll read this book and you'll feel guilt, shame, doubt, and utter helplessness if your motive is for your sake. And that's a good thing. We have to come to the end of ourselves and see our complete inability if we're going to make progress in this Christian life. Again, put some gas in the car. Quit pushing it. You can't 
do it. You can't do it. Which leads us to the third and final point. We've seen the basis of unity. We've seen the basics of unity. Now we're going to see the source of unity. And we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. Again, I'm not going to expound on these verses. It's just going to give us the fuel to see this is what it looks like. This is how you do this. Again, in my personal opinion, this is the most amazing passage in the Bible. It is a seven-verse biography of Jesus Christ, and it covers His entire life from eternity past to eternity future and includes His earthly ministry. Let's read it again. Philippians 2, verses 5-11. through 11. We're almost done, guys. Listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'll say it again. It would probably be more fitting to just read that and put my hand over my mouth and we'd all just kind of sit and soak that in. It's amazing. Here you have the picture of Christ Jesus who eternally existed with God in the form of God. And don't ever forget that. Emptying Himself and becoming human for the purpose of dying for me. And after His humiliation, He is exalted to the highest of all places so that every knee will bow to Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. But, tucked away in verse 5, oh God, open our eyes to this. We find our source that is our only hope of unity. We, who are naturally selfish and absorbed with our own desires, have access to the only thing that can overcome our sinful, selfish nature. Read verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Did you catch it? Which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is yours in Christ Jesus? A mind, the mind, of humility. You say, well, I just don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do that. You're right. You can't. But His mind is now your mind. The mind of humility, the very same mind that was operative in Christ as He emptied Himself and became human and hung on a cross to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. You think to yourself, I can't do it, and you are right. You cannot. You could not. But He did. And since He did, what is His is yours. Even His mind. Christ's mind is our mind. And if this passage doesn't make it clear enough, look, you don't have to turn there. Write it down. 1 Corinthians 2.16 Listen. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But 
we have the mind of Christ. Let me read it again. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. Who is we? The church. The very Spirit of God dwells in us and thus we have the mind of Christ. In our Philippians passage, Paul says, have this mind in yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. Christian, get a hold of this truth. The bank, the source of unity, bank, I thought about going with bank, by the way, basis, basics, bank, didn't work. The source of unity the bank of unity, and I want you to look at it as a bank for a second. The bank of unity is filled with riches for you and for me. Remember the, the rich uncle thing several weeks ago when we were talking about sanctification? Your rich uncle died and you never wrote it down in your checkbook that he left you all his money? Listen. The bank of unity is filled with riches for you and for me. This bank has an open account filled with the riches of the very mind of Christ, and your name and my name are on the checks. Christ said, my account, let them write checks on my account. They don't know what unity is, I'll teach them what unity is by giving them my mind, by giving them what is mine by right, giving it to them freely and openly. When I don't have enough to serve the way I know I should, I come and I make a withdrawal from His account. I announce my poverty through my humility and the riches of the risen reigning King are lavished on me. I can't do what I need to do, but He can. I can't be humble. He exemplifies it for me and then through me. I can't count others as more important than myself, but He moves in and through me to do it in ways that I would have never believed. This is the mind that pleases God and brings unity to the household of faith. The mind that is fixed. The mind that is fixed. The mind that is fixed on the sufficiency of the living Christ. Pleading with Him to live His life through us so that the glory of God can be revealed to us and through us. This is what brings us into unity. This is Christian joy. This is Christian unity. This is the Christian life. And it only comes through the source of our unity, which is the very mind of Jesus Christ Himself. Put down your deadly doing. Stop trying to do this in and of yourselves. You cannot do it. Quit trying to do better. Quit trying to be better. Despair of yourself and run to Christ for His ability to be made clear to you and through you. That's the source of unity. 
it's not that we come here and say, okay, we're going to try to get along. I don't really like the way we do the Lord's Supper, but I'll do it. I'll grip my teeth and we'll get through it. And Man, okay, I don't really like that guy singing too much, but I'm working towards unity, so we'll do better. Stop. Stop. And say, God, I am utterly helpless to humble myself before these people. But I believe that I have the mind of Christ. Your Word says that I have the mind of Christ. Help me to know it and help me to do it. So we've seen the basis of unity in the benefits of salvation listed in verse 1. We saw the basics of unity in verses 2-4. through And we saw the source of unity in verses 5-11. through Now we have to find application for all of it. And if we're not careful, this is some mystical experience that only a few super-Christians have. But that is definitely not the goal of the Spirit or the Apostle. We are being called to unity by this passage. And having seen that the key to unity is humility, we have a choice to make. What I believe we need, and this is one of those words that scares people, we need revelation. We need illumination. We need to see that what God said He meant. I think to properly apply what we just talked about, we need the Holy Spirit of God to reveal the full weight of it to our hearts. So the application is, all right, God, I'm going to pray that you'll help me to understand this passage. So I'm going to challenge you with something. Moon next week, Lord willing, we'll be speaking on verses 5 through 11 to expound on that more because I definitely didn't touch the tip of the iceberg of that passage. I want to challenge you with something. Take this week and read this passage, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and read it at least once a day. 11 verses. Anybody in here can do that. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Read it at least once a day, and then do this. Pray that God would reveal the truth of this passage to your heart, because we have to see it as true, because we may say, well, I don't think I have the mind of Christ. Ask God to show you the truth of it. Meditate on the humility of Christ. Read the passage. Pray that God will reveal the truth of the passage. Meditate on the humility of Christ and ask God to help you see the availability of that humility in your own life. We don't have any problem saying, yeah, Jesus was incredibly humble. But then ask God, say, hey, give me that humility. And ask God to help you know the truth of your possession of the mind of Christ. I would live differently if I knew that I had an open bank account, that I could write checks anytime I wanted to and get whatever I wanted. Ask God to show you the truth, help you to know the truth of your possession of the mind of Christ, and ask God to unify us around these truths. And not just us, but His entire church. And we may think it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. His plan, His way is perfect. And unity through humility is His plan. May we see it, may we know it, but most of all, may we live it as the body of Christ until we see Him face to face.
Let's pray. God, it is unbelievable. Apart from a move of Your Spirit, God, to read this and apply it. To hear You say that You have given us the very mind of Christ. I don't live that way far too often. God, would You help us in this week to read this passage, to meditate on this passage, and by the power of Your Spirit, God, to see that this is only possible through Your working in and through us. You have given us great benefits in our salvation. That's the basis of our unity. You've shown us the basics of humility of unity, which boils down to counting others as more important than ourselves. And then You showed us, God, the source of that unity is the very mind of Christ Himself. Challenge us, God, and help us to know the joy that comes with this humility. Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May we know rest through humility that results in unity as we serve You together, God. We ask for Your help. And know that without it, God, we are hopeless and helpless. And we trust You to do what only You can do, God. In Jesus' name.